0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know. And we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I didn't get to wish you a happy Thanksgiving last week, but uh, it's good to see you today. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' is teaching through Matthew 5-7 through 7, and we're making our way through chapter 5, uh, learning from Jesus uh, what it looks like to live a good life and what it looks like to be a good person. Now to do that, Jesus is obviously having to confront conventional values of culture, and challenging us at the most personal and intimate levels. So just to give you sort of a, uh, to keep our visual going, which at least for a few more weeks, you know, there's the commandments about not committing murder, adultery, and divorce, and for Jesus, there's a higher standard than not doing those, and it has to do with matters of the heart. In Jesus' mind, anger can do a lot of damage before it crosses the line of murder. The heart can do a lot of damage sexually before it crosses the line of adultery. And there's a lot of marital issues and sexual issues that could cause problems long before you get to a divorce. In fact, uh, anger and lust cause a lot of divorces. If you took both of those away, you wouldn't have nearly as much. So they're related. Someone pointed out, mad right here. Thought that was a good observation. Well, if you're going to be a good person then, in Jesus' mind, uh, you're going to have to have an internal change. Your heart's going to have to be transformed into somebody who cares about people far more than just not doing these things. So the second piece about living a good life has to do with valuing people at a level that's far beyond this. That's essentially what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. At least through chapter 5 for sure. So the question today is how does someone who lives under God's rule decided to to come under his leadership, come into his kingdom, how do they view marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Uh, Because they're all connected here. Uh, And here's what we're gonna learn. (laughs) Jesus is saying, you can't talk about lust without talking about adultery. That was the first thing Jesus taught us, was raise the standard high. And you can't talk about adultery without talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage. So it's just sort of a progression, and you'll see they're very closely related. And we learn again that sex and marriage are tightly linked in Scripture, everywhere. They're never separated Never. And that's going to become even clearer today. In fact, their relationship, if you look at verses, let's, let's look at this again. So here's the verses we have for today. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, Jesus said, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, forces adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That was the text. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at what 27 said. This was right before it. You have heard that it was said. This was the phrase that we see all the way throughout Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, when you get to, you don't have it was heard. That's because these are connected. There's also a connector in the text. So that means what Jesus is going to say about divorce grows out of what he just said about adultery. Again, connecting sex and marriage, not leaving them disconnected. So it's his thought about adultery that leads him to talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This is an expansion. So this is the only abbreviated statement. So it sounds a little bit like this. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And let me add that anyone who divorces his wife except for immorality, adultery, commits adultery. That's what he's saying. You force adultery and commit. So it's adultery that is the theme uh, in in this text. Now, That's interesting, what Jesus is doing here. And it took a a little while to make this point, and I want to emphasize it today, because Jesus is primarily bringing up divorce for one purpose, to talk about sexual sin and sexual purity. That's his primary task in Matthew 5. The divorce, marriage, and remarriage issues are sort of embedded into that, but the real issue is still sexual purity. Uh, so you can't talk about lust without adultery. You can't talk about adultery without divorce and remarriage. And now it's interesting also that, remember, verse, the verses right before this are, you know, you're better to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand than, than to sin because it's better to go to heaven without limbs than it is to be in hell, you know, with a full body. That was the idea, and it's interesting because it's after that topic, hell and self-mutilation, that Matthew brings up marriage. Mark does the same thing. It's just interesting that hell naturally leads into a conversation about marriage. I don't know if you find that funny, but I find that funny. But I want you to know, you're going to see something here. It's on purpose. It is on purpose. Um, So, this is what we're going to learn today. Lust is morally equivalent to adultery. And divorce is morally equivalent to adultery. Jesus is basically saying, oh, since we're talking about adultery, and I just brought up lust, and we're talking about adultery, and it leads to adultery, let me tell you something else that leads to adultery. Divorce does. Lust and divorce lead to adultery. That's what he's saying. And We're going to learn, because Jesus is pushing against culture, that marriage is more than a legal thing. And sex is more than a physical thing. And it cannot be said enough. And Jesus isn't letting up. There is something supernatural in these two things, as we're going to see, in sex and marriage. There's something supernatural about them. Some metaphysical aspect, some mystical, spiritual thing about them that you can't miss. And that are realities that have to be addressed. So uh, we put up this little thing here that lust somehow is on the same uh, continuum as adultery. So there's, there's no personal private sexual thoughts that don't dehumanize people and that usually don't result in some sort of dehumanizing acts long before you get there. But This can always be traced back to here. So they're on a continuum. So Jesus is essentially saying you can't talk about any kind of sex in your mind or physically without bringing up the topic of marriage because they're too intricately linked. Intricately linked. They are personal. They're relational. Sex is a personal, relational kind of issue. So you got to bring up marriage. Uh, But in this context, Jesus is establishing what he's going to establish for us. And we just have to have it continually taught us, because we weren't taught it enough, is the bonding power of sex. And if you don't have that, then you can't understand what Jesus is about to say. And... uh, You won't have the foundation. So in this context, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, the topic is still sexual purity, which is very interesting and leads to some interesting thoughts that we're going to have over the next couple weeks. Remember, sex is either making a covenant or it's breaking one. In Scripture, it's the only two uses for it. Outside of that, it's devastating. It's a supernatural bonding agent that has a physical and spiritual element to it. And so Jesus is essentially making it plain. If you're going to be a good person and you're going to live a good life, you will value sex and marriage way beyond what culture does. Any culture, his or ours. Which means you, you will go beyond legal what's legal, and you'll, be, uh, and you'll go beyond what's physical. That's what believers have to do. That's why it's so difficult, by the way, to explain to a young person and we've got our teens in here today. They've been taught this plenty by, by our student pastor. Uh, I know his name, by the way. Mike is his name. i just just saying. Where is he? You got him. Sorry, Mike. You're right in the middle of all that. Um It's very, it's hard to explain. And if you're sitting in here and you go, you know, I've always understood this to some degree, but I have a hard time explaining it to people. Well, maybe this will help you. Uh, But as believers in this age, it doesn't matter if you're in junior high school or you've been married twice. In our culture, neither of these things are valued. And I think I think there's something to be gained by valuing them that would help you in your marriage today or in your situation today. Whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're unmarried and plan to be married again, whether you've been remarried, divorced a few times, whatever situation you're in, there's valuable things to be brought out here, and I want to make sure we uncover those over the next few weeks. But you've got to go beyond legal and beyond physical if you're going to do this the way Jesus wants us to. So because of that this was a real battle because when you, I was telling somebody in the first service, when you crack the door on the topic of that Jesus cracks the door on here, then you just, you got to open the door wide open and go all the way through it. And so if Jesus's emphasis in this text is sexual purity, then I have to help us again understand the connection and the bonding power of sex. Or well, we won't understand what Jesus says in these verses. And I had in my head Dallas Willard's comment that I read years ago. Uh, and we read plenty of times that one of the most telling things about contemporary human beings is they can't find a good reason for not committing adultery. That is a very true statement if you just look around culture. We cannot find a good reason. And if you don't find a good reason, what is the reason Then you can't understand why Jesus says what he says here? And Philip Yancey in his book, which I read years ago, I've never forgotten this statement of his. I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. And I do agree with him on that, that we have failed at doing that well, but that's because it's difficult. And there's a part of the church that just wants to say to you, because Jesus said so, that should be enough, but it's not. Somehow, you you, you got to have more understanding to tell raging hormones, no, you, you got to have more. So allow me to set the stage for what Jesus says in Matthew 5 32. To do that, I have to go to Paul. And I want to make the connection between the spiritual and the physical and this mystical, metaphysical thing. So that we have, so we can understand what Jesus is saying. So I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 6 for this. This was not on my radar to have to do, but I just think it's important. So let's walk through this and see what Jesus says, what Paul says about and how it relates to what Jesus is going to tell us. So it's so amazing. All right. This is in in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, he's talking about the body and sexuality. Marriage, divorce, remarriage, all the topics come up. In chapter 6, there's this portion of the text because the Corinthians were, were being immoral. They were having sex outside of marriage. And so this is what Paul writes them. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, this is really important to hear because this is not saying don't have sexual immorality. This is saying your body wasn't even intended for that. I created your body intentionally so i'm telling you that it wasn't meant for that that's the physical part of you it was not meant for that it was meant for me god would say it's meant for me i made it so that you could use it in a way that honors me now you're seeing all of a sudden there's this is the physical piece Here's the spiritual piece. And you're going to see these two ideas in different ways never get disconnected. In fact, they, they come alive in ways that will enhance your spiritual life, your physical life too, but even your spiritual life here, though we're talking about sex. And the Lord for the body, so it's just both ways. I'm for the body. I, I'm not against the body. It matters. What you do physically has spiritual implications. God says, I understand that. I intended that. I intended for you to have a body, and I intended for you to use it correctly. And then Paul adds this statement here, which is fascinating. God raised up Jesus. That's the Lord. He identifies. Now we know who he's talking when he says Lord and I and, and will also raise us up. We're going to be raised physically. Now, this matches perfectly with what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, because what have we said? The Sermon on the Mount is the message about how to live eternal life now, not wait to heaven. This is saying you're spiritual before you get to heaven. You don't wait till you're dead to be spiritual. You're already being spiritual. I'm going to raise your body. And what's he saying? I've marked that body for eternity. I didn't just save your soul. I saved your body. And one day I'm going to raise it because it matters. Remember we've said you're already living the kind of life now that will be suited for either heaven or hell. You are already doing with your body what will characterize heaven or hell. And this is Jesus making Paul making that point crystal clear. We're going to raise that body. We need that thing up there in heaven. We're going to still use that same body he gave us, that's for the Lord, when we get there. Profound, so much to say about it. Let's keep going. So don't you know then, your bodies are members of Christ. Now we're going into all kind of mystical craziness. This is Let's be honest, a freaky text. That my body are members of Christ, right here. Feet, hands, genitals. That's Paul's point. It's all his. When I use them, it's as if I'm using his body, his body parts because they're connected. There's the physical and the spiritual already. Before even Paul really starts talking about sex, he's still trying to show you the spiritual connection of your body to your spiritual life and to Christ. Shall I take those members? Here's where he goes. Shall I take those members and make them members with a prostitute? At this time, the reason he says prostitute here is because they were sleeping with prostitutes at the time, because that was in their culture to do it. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't, doesn't have to be a prostitute for this to be true. It's any sexual sin, sin outside of marriage. That's why he says beginning sexual morality, any kind. They just happen to be sleeping with prostitutes, and that was the issue. And so Paul says, should I take that physical body, which is now part of Christ's body, and my body's Christ, and make them members? What's he say? No way. No way. In other words, there's a radical spiritual component going on here that means something for how I use my body sexually. And those two worlds are opposed to one another. All right? Don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute or commit sexual morality. Look at this. Becomes one body with her. Joined in one body. This is marital language. You just committed a marital act. And that's why he brings up Genesis 2. Because the two will become one flesh. Now, watch. Now, let's just continue real quick before we explain that. But he who is joined to the Lord. Now, look, this is, the, this is incredible because Paul's going to take Genesis 2 now and make it the basis for keeping yourself sexually pure. He's also going to make it the basis of your relationship with God, which in one single verse, you know, you think to yourself, what verses in the New Testament connect marriage and your relationship with God more beautifully than Ephesians 5. It might be right here. Because now we're going to take this, which has a marital image. Remember, you love husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. This Genesis 2 text now supports not having sex outside of marriage. It also supports because it's a picture of the relationship I have with God. It's as if I'm married to God too. I have two phenomenally important relationships going on. One is physical, and one is spiritual. And marriage is right at the center of it. This is incredible. That means, Paul is reiterating, you know, when you read Genesis 2.24, you know, it brings the man and the woman together, and they shall become one flesh. You hear one flesh and you go, oh, that could mean, probably does mean, to some degree in Genesis 2, procreation. A couple gives birth to a child, that is one flesh. That's two become one. It also means sex because you can't procreate without it. Right? Right? So it means both. But here, it only means sex. He's not talking about procreation. He's not talking about children. He's only talking about sex. He uses this marital image, which here's what he's saying. Sex is a marital act. It fuses partners. It weds them. This was his creative intent. And that same marital act, that same intimate marital act can be used to describe my spiritual relationship with God. So it has a real spiritual side to it, not only with the person I'm having sex with, but with the God that made my body. And Paul is essentially saying right here, your relationship with God is very much like a marriage. It's nuptial. It's intimate. It's personal. It's permanent. It's all those things. You have both dynamics going on. So sex has this mystical, mysterious binding force to it. So, Sexual sin then, in other words, sex outside of marriage, clearly, the physical act, the physical union, will contradict the spiritual one. So if you, have, if you have sex outside of marriage, you didn't just violate marriage, you violated the spiritual relationship with God. And not just violates it, watch this, mutilates it mutilates it. Well, what do you mean by that? Remember when I told you that self-mutilation in hell, then the topic of marriage? Look what Paul says here. We'll go back to verse 15. I think it's here. Shall I take the members of Christ? This is the idea of tearing off. Shall I tear off my limbs and attach them to someone else? Limbs? related to Christ, and make them members of anyone sexually who's not my married partner, it's the same imagery. It's like cutting up Christ on a spiritual level, cutting your body up physically on a physical level. It mutilates God's whole intention for marriage. Sex is a bonding, sticky nature, it means that there's something more than physical that's being exchanged. And if you're stuck to someone and you try to pull them apart, somebody's going to get hurt. It's going to be destructive. It's going to rip. It's going to tear. It's the idea. You ever? Certainly you haven't done this, but some people have. Put their tongue on a frozen pole and then try to get out of there. Okay, you're leaving something. You might taste pole for the rest of your life. I don't know because I'm never going to try that. But you know what I think is a really good illustration, and it's Christmas time, and I'm sure you're going to deal with it, is duct tape. If you take duct tape and stick it to something and pull it off, you leave a little duct tape there, right? guess duct tape. And you also take a little something from whatever you had it stuck to. That's duct tape for you. It never quite sticks perfectly again. Something's lost and something's gained. That's essentially what he's saying here. That's what one flesh is. It's indissoluble. You'd have to tear it apart. You'd have to rip a body. It's like ripping a body apart because sex puts together in a way that becomes something new. So marriage is more than just a human decision. We just decided to get married. It's definitely more than a social convention social construction. There's just no… You can't do anything you want with it. That's the point. I don't care what the political climate is. I don't care what the social climate is. I don't care what the moral culture is. You can't do anything you want with it. That's a fact. It doesn't matter. That's what he's saying. Look at this. Just to keep that imagery, watch what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Now, we're going to have to probably look at Matthew 19 eventually, but this is where the topic gets expressed further, where Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is him detailing it out. Let me spell this out as clearly as I can. So you're one new thing, one new creation. What therefore God has joined, that means there's some, this is the sex part, this is the spiritual part, they go together. And in marriage, there's a God joining it that, that happens. And no one is to separate it. You can't, dis, you, you can't do it. To, to do it, to separate it, is to undo a creation. God has cemented, this is the idea of joining here, by the way, God has sort of cemented this thing. To pull it apart is to do all kinds of devastating damage. Mike Mason, in his book, Mystery of Marriage, probably explains this better than I've ever heard it explained, and I never think of this text right here, this verse, Matthew 19, 6, without thinking of Mike Mason's quote. This is what he says, everything hinges upon conjugality and marriage as the extreme case of human conjunction, human connecting. And it represents par excellence the one mysterious binding force in human relationships upon which all other relationships depend, this marriage relationship. To tamper with it, to mess with it at all, for man to think somehow he can undo what God made He says this, it would be as if suddenly the laws of physics were such that two dissimilar atoms could no longer exist in conjunction with one another, with any degree of permanence. That being the case, there could be no matter, no universe, no anything. It's like destroying anything else God has made. Devastating. You know, in Genesis, when, we are, uh, when God is separating things in order to create, He literally says, We're going to make light and darkness, we've got to separate those. Land and sea, we've got to separate those. Heaven and earth are separated in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, The woman is separated from the man. He makes her from the man, separates her from the man to create two genders. Then God does something he hasn't done in all of creation. He makes a new thing right there. By bringing her back to him and calling them one flesh, he creates something else, and then he says, this is the one thing that I have made. I don't want what? separated. It would be devastating. Don't undo this. Don't undo this. Here's an interesting thought. You can't be joined spiritually to anyone but Jesus. Right? You say, i got a relationship with God. I have been joined. God, or that, that text where God says, you've you been joined to one another here. We're joined to him. Right, We've been joined to the Lord. Who else do you think you can marry besides him? Who else can you be joined to besides him? And imagine that you have a healthy relationship with God. If you say, I'm going to invite somebody else into this thing, never would happen. And Paul is making the point that spiritually, there is no one else to be joined to. And sexually, there is no one else to be joined to but your wife or your husband. Do you see how beautifully Paul is laying that out? I mean, it's incredible. So, when you sin sexually, you, sec- you violate something physically and spiritually at the same time. And that's why Paul says this in the next verse what you would expect him to say run from that stuff, flee it, get away from it. Because, physically and spiritually, it's devastating. And then he can't help himself. He's going to go one step further. Can we go another step further? Every other sin you commit is outside the body. But when you commit sexual immorality, you sin against your own body. Why? There's only one, well, there's a couple reasons in the text. One of them is because of your union with Christ, your spiritual union with Christ, which is clear in three. The other one is is that when your body when your body has sex outside of marriage it has a bonding power you just connected yourself to something else you connected Christ to something that is not holy you've sinned against your own body when you do that because you just left something of your body with someone. That's why it's a sin against your own body. Because spiritually and physically, like duct tape, you took something into your body and you gave something from your body. And so it, it affects the body. Spiritually, Now, because the body has a joining power, you sin against it because you just ripped it off. You just mutilated it. Um, This is interesting. Watch this. You sin against your own body. This little preposition right here. This little preposition can mean against but it also means into. And both images work here because of the nature of sex. You sin against your own body. That's the physical part. But here's the spiritual part. What's the next verse say? Don't you know that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit? That you are not Your own. Oh, by the way, there's a sense in which your body isn't yours either. Physically, you sin against your body. Spiritually, you do something even more horrific that Paul has clearly made the point, that when I take my members and I commit sexual immorality, I've taken the members of Christ and done that. He's basically saying, you put Christ into that sexual experience. You sin against your body and then in a spiritual sense you drag God into that sexual experience. This is phenomenal hillside what he's saying here. Because it is your body that's the physical side. The spiritual side its not yours. One commentator put it like this and I thought man if you don't understand that this is the end of the whole argument. At the end of the day, here's what Paul is saying. Sexual immorality quintessentially represents the invasion of the body. because That's what sex is. Christ is sexually penetrating evil. That's why it's a sin against your own body and against a body that isn't yours it's physical and spiritual. Now you say, how does all this apply to marriage, remarriage, and divorce? Because you've got to get back to that. Even though sexual purity is the primary reason for bringing up the topic. Well, Jesus is essentially saying you cannot value sex the way Jesus does and not value marriage. That's the reason. Jesus is going to say in here you want to be sexually pure don't be lustful you want to be sexually pure don't divorce both things now this would have blown away the people in that crowd probably like this one now Let's go ahead and figure out what in the world. Sandwich time. What are we doing? You know, we've got a couple minutes here. I'm not going to get all the way done. But you're, you're okay with that. You're used to that. We're going to be fine. All right, here's what Jesus says. So here's the first thing Jesus is going to say. In light of what we just said, sexual purity. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was the mindset of the day. This is the legal perspective of divorce. In their minds, if you were going to do it, if you're going to divorce, as long as you do it legally, this is the idea behind this verse. He's confronting the crowd that has morally allowed themselves to divorce as long as it was legal. You say, where did they get that? They got it from Deuteronomy 24. And Matthew 19, will expound on this a little bit more, but that's where they got it from. And Jesus is saying, ah, oh, that's what you've heard from Deuteronomy 24. But Jesus is going to fix that. But listen to what Deuteronomy 24 says, okay? Because the Old Testament prohibits divorce. It's not one of the top 10, but it grows out of the seventh commandment of not committing adultery. That's why Jesus is bringing it up here. It just naturally grows up. I'm going to talk about adultery. I'm going to have to talk about marriage, divorce, or remarriage. And people in Jesus' day somehow got the idea that as long as it was, it was just a legal matter, man, divorce is just a legal matter. Just do it legally. And so here's what the text says. We've got just a little ways to go, and then we'll be, then we'll be done here. Here's the verses. So here's what Deuteronomy 24 says, and Jesus is going to clear this up. But this is what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he then finds no, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Tough word to explain. We're not really sure what it was they are talking about. It's very difficult to figure out. Jesus makes it clear that that is adultery in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, we're not sure what exactly an indecency would have been, that a man would have put away his wife for it. Some physical, uh, could-be-sexual, sort of inclined toward that anyway. But he writes her a certificate of divorce. And he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man, this is the language it uses here, because things had gotten really out of hand there, doesn't want her anymore, he writes her a certificate as well, puts it in her hand, sends her on her way. And if that husband sends her out of the house or dies, whichever one, Then look, here's the key verse. Then her former husband, either one of those husbands before, who sent her away, cannot marry her again. After she has been defiled, important term, we'll come back to it later, uh, because that's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring this sin upon the land. You know what this was basically saying? Hey guys, I realize as much as I don't want divorce to happen here, you can't just send your wife away for anything. So, Moses, if you would, just make a little legal document. And make sure that a woman, when she leaves that husband, has a legal document in her hand. Otherwise, she is going to be considered an adulteress and then stoned to death. Or she's going to end up out there by herself and not have, and you had to be married in that day to survive if you were a woman. So either way, death was, you send a woman away, and she's dead. So you got to write a bill of divorcement. But here's what I'm not going to tolerate, guys. I'm not going to tolerate the wife-swapping game, where you send her away for a little while, and you're going to have her back. That ain't happening. That's what this was for. Moses is essentially saying, you can't do that to women. You better put something legal in her hand so that she's not floating around society with no help, that's brutal. She needs a legal document, write it up, put it in her hand and send her away with it so that she can go remarry. And she won't be considered a throwaway. Because I'm not tolerating us throwing away humans. We value people too much. Now, the Pharisees. So the text here was designed to protect women from literally death. This is what a beautiful back in the day, just so you know, in Jesus' day, when he's when they're talking about that, and in the Old Testament, women couldn't initiate divorce. Only men could. And so it put women in a huge disadvantage and made them extremely vulnerable to the whims of a man. Jesus, this sickened him. Okay? So, Moses creates a legal document to protect women, not to allow divorce. Okay? It was also to prevent wife swapping in this game men could easily play because they're sick in this regard. They could be really sick in this regard, and Jesus knows where this could lead. He says, no, 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 we're not having this wife swapping game. By the way, the Old Testament has all kind of stuff that has become the grounds for reality shows going on today. <laughs> These shows, we think, of, wow, that's pretty radical. No, it was going on in the Old Testament. Nineteen days after creation, here we were. Already doing it all. Uh, so, they not only abused this in Jesus' day. Okay, in Jesus' day, they abused this. Uh, Further by saying, by interpreting this as Moses commanded us to divorce them. No, he didn't. He was just dealing with the havoc that was being wreaked on women and society because you were nonchalantly getting rid of ladies, your wives. Okay? They also, they also did this, interpreted this very liberally. The, the, the people in Jesus' day were divorcing their wives for anything. There's a whole liberal view on this whole thing. means you could divorce her for anything. You could make up anything you wanted. As long as you put something legal in her hand, you were good. As long as it was legal, get her out of here. Because we're going to see Jesus is going to turn the tables and say, get him out of here. It could be either way. So these religious people were ignoring God's heart for marriage and using Deuteronomy 24. By the way, let me just go ahead and throw this out there in case you're wondering. Deuteronomy 24 is not the place to go to see how Jesus thinks about marriage (laughs) or to see what God thinks about marriage. Okay, in the liberal view, these guys were, you can imagine, because Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who clearly had done this well, if you can legally do it, how many people were remarried that Jesus was talking to on the Sermon on the Mount and inviting them into the kingdom? And they're sitting out there with maybe their second or third or fourth wife for things you, you, the liberal view of indecency. That day they were, they were putting their wives away for burning dinner. Do you know Gail and I wouldn't be married today? Because our first Gail ruined the first dinner we ever had after our honeymoon. I don't know, somebody said clove or garlic, and she put a bulb. And I'm Italian, I can handle garlic. It almost killed me. <laughs> it almost killed me. Uh, the other, if you overspice food, you could be divorced. Spinning around in the street. Now, girl's never done that. But I wouldn't tolerate it. I'll just want to say that right now. <laughs> There's no street spinning in the Chiafalaha. high. I can't argue with that one. But then how about this one? Speaking unkindly about your in-laws. Or you stop finding her attractive, or she talks too loud. I mean, we're all in bad shape here. This was brutal on women, needless to say, and sickening to Jesus. And Jesus is about to reset God's sacred value, of marriage, and the bond between sex and marriage. He's about to raise that value. Now, this is where I had to stop in the first service. So let me just throw this out. I'll just, clearly, if you're here, you have questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, clearly, that we didn't get to. Uh, maybe you're sitting here, and you're not sure your marriage is going to make it. Or maybe you say, I have screwed this up so badly that I don't know what God's asking me to do right now. Next week. That's what we're going to do next week. We're going to look at what Jesus said, and then we're going to answer those questions. And if you have lived with it this long, you can live with it one more week. All I can say is don't do anything rash. (laughs) Don't do anything rash until we look at the rest of this text. Agreed? All right. All right. Stand up. Let's go ahead and uh, get you out of here. There's plenty to join. Even though normally we, I'm trying to make sure every sermon has the kind of conclusion that a good sermon ought to have, but I couldn't do it today. There just wasn't enough time to get it all in. At the end of the day, there's plenty enough to chew on here, right? You can go home and think about a lot of things. All right, well, great seeing you. See you next week.